morning. One of the topics that comes up frequently is given the all the political issues that are out there right now, how do you handle in the school business issues around race? And today we have three individuals who've had a lot of experience in the school business, and they're going to answer some questions about this. So I've asked each of them to introduce themselves to you before we get started. So Ruben, would you start, please? Hello, my name is uh, Ruben Perez or Ruben Perez. I uh, have been in education for about 30 years and I played multiple roles in K through 12. Um, one of them being at the district level of student advocate with that uh, specifically worked on at-risk issues with male issues and minority issues by one department called the Academic uh, Achievement Department. And um, so I was a behavioral specialist before I retired. And so I've been all around the block when it comes to at-risk behaviors for um, data with um, academics and the psychosocial ends as well. Thank you. And we have Dr. Cheston Curl, Ozine Curl. Thank you, Cheston. Hi, everybody. I am Cheston, and I've been in education for about 18 years. I have taught in higher ed, public ed, and been an instructional coach. My doctorate focused on teacher education and retention in urban areas. And so diversity and equity are, of course, a passion of mine, but also um, keeping teachers in the classroom. And um, I guess over that, that's about it on me, Ruben. Thank you. <laughs> and then we have Michael Curl, who is Cheston and Michael, as you probably figured out, are married. And Michael Curl. Oh, he hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Curl, and I am a, a building administrator in Houston, Texas. Uh, I have about 18 years in the education field as well, uh, teaching, uh, assistant principal, building principal, uh, all at the secondary level. Uh, my work has uh, dealt with under-resourced kids in many instances and uh, working with campuses and helping realize, realize, realization of uh, equity issues and uh, making sure that we all have a seat at the table and doing what's best for all of our kids um, whenever possible. Thank you. So the first question we're going to discuss is, why is race such a hard topic to discuss? Ruben. Um, there are many layers to that onion. It's hard to say, you know, this is why it's so difficult. And because there's many layers, a lot of people find it very difficult to allow enough time and thought for the various levels when they come to the table. You know, to encapsulate it for the most part, it's, it goes under the umbrella that if everybody thought like me, this world would be perfect. And uh, when it comes to race issues, it's more of an emotional reality than a logic uh, reality. And people kind of fight and argue with anything that doesn't already fit the narrative that they've been scripted since birth. Um, one of the biggest problems that I have found is that this is a completely inherited reality. We've inherited a history behind us, and several stories have been told about what is true and what is not true, and then people have difficulty uh, maneuvering around all the different types of opinions and stories that have been told, and some have been valued and some have been dismissed, depending on which group you are. The subtleties of anything along racial issues um, is sometimes... You know, you tell a story, whether it's something about a race ride or a police officer or, you know, positive or negative. 
Um, you talk about Black Lives Matter, white privilege. You know, those are all issues that cause some people to just shrink into the corners because it is so explosive and so difficult to discuss and other people that becomes a fire alarm. They have to talk about it and they, they need their stories heard. And I think part of the problem is that when people hear stories that they don't agree with, it's very difficult to listen until somebody gets to the period. One of the things that I've noticed is that people interrupt very, very often, often with a very strong opinion because it's so emotionally charged. So um, the stories that are passed down in families in and of themselves, you know, when we have to realize that we have people alive today, you know, who witness um, fountains being separated, restrooms being separated, and we are so, we sometimes think we're so far removed from their realities that we don't, we, we just think to ourselves, that's in the past. But for some people, it's very much a part of their story that got them to where they are. So honoring the fact that there's different perspectives, um, you know, sometimes can, can, can the stories of John Lewis and Candace Owens live in the same room? And can we say, those are two different reactions to the same stimulus? You know, can we discuss Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez? You know, uh, can we discuss any of the perspectives that are only written in journals or in news articles and not the history books? And, you know, are we going to honor the different perspectives that we have going on? When we talk about the GI Bill from the 1940s, you know, are we honoring the fact that the GI Bill actually helps a lot more white families than families of color? And if we're not going to acknowledge that a college education from your grandfather or your great-grandfather somehow benefits two to three generations down the line, it's hard for those stories to live on the table. Um, you know, you cannot address systemic support or systemic ills if you don't identify they're even there. So that type of uh, conversation just seems to surface a lot of shame, guilt, and a wanting to retreat or a wanting to attack. And if everybody is able to breathe, and if everybody is able to have some sort of passivity, uh, some sort of allowance for the different uh, passivity, I think I just made up that word. Um, but if we allow people their stories and then somehow are able to calmly synthesize them you know, and give them their due, and wonder where these reactions came from. Um, I, th I think that in and of itself will help calm the waters. But until we become less emotionally committed to what we believe is true and allow other truths to be at the table, it just makes it more difficult to maneuver around them. Thank you, Ruben. And Cheston, same question. Why is race such a difficult conversation to have? I would dig into what Ruben said in terms of um, what Frantz Fanon, the philosopher said, was called cognitive dissonance. When, when we build these stories and psychology tells us we start storing our experience at the age of two years old, that's when the conscious mind awakes. So from the age of two, we've been collecting all of this experiential data, right? And we've been fed a lot of stuff from our families, but we've also seen things in the media, 
we have also lived things and experienced them differently. Like Ruben, when you said emotionally, um, Ruby, you know, the emotional response is first. So we latch onto that. So the story that we've been building for our world becomes so real and we get pinned into the single truth idea, the single story idea that it literally rocks someone's world when they're faced with truth, data, just the idea that they could have been wrong since the age of two. And it's not about right or wrong, right? It's this multiplicity, but we start holding on to what we know so tightly that we don't make room for other people's experience and other people's lives. Because it might, Ruben, when you said the guilt, it's funny because usually when we talk about issues of race, what I hear is that Black people are the ones dealing with the shame and the guilt, um, which also is cognitive dissonance for people when somebody says, hey, I'm Black and I'm proud. I love being Black or, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then they're like, wait a minute, but you're supposed to be the underdog. You're supposed to be mistreated. Why would you love that? Um, But I think that Black people have had to consistently unpack trauma. Nobody ever told me, hey, Cheston, white people don't like you or aren't going to like you or you know, there's this race issue in the world. Nobody ever sat me down and had that specific talk, but I knew it. I knew it in elementary. I knew it when my teachers discriminated against me. I knew it when a girl that was a very close friend of mine, when her mother wouldn't shake my hand and when she wouldn't allow her to come to my house, um, it came off and the Band-Aid was ripped for me at the age of eight, you know, in second grade. And so we observe and we build these truths. And for someone to really bear the, the guilt and the shame more often than not is uh, I see people who, like you said, don't want to be seen as the oppressor. And they're like, well, I didn't do that. My parents didn't do that. That's not necessarily the issue at hand. It's, it's about moving forward and righting wrongs and making room for people at the table, not just saying, well, I, did, I, I didn't build it. It was built this way. I'm going to wash my hands of it. But the difficulty is once I acknowledge that there is an issue with race, if I don't do something about it, then I have this blood on my hands, right? So it's, it's kind of a Pontius Pilate proclivity. If I could just like, not, <laughs> if I could just say it doesn't happen or it doesn't matter, or it's a one in a million chance, it's every now and then most time things are equal, then you don't have to deal with it. But the problem with that is there's a group or many groups who deal with it and they don't have the option of washing their hands on it because their hands are made of that color. Thank you, Justin. Michael, as a school administrator, why is it such a difficult issue? Well, you know, of course, uh, as, as any building administrator who's watching this or anybody who's worked with principals knows, there, there are a lot of reasons, you know, why it's, why it's difficult. Uh, I think one of the most prevalent is that as a building leader and as a leader of an organization, you, you want to build harmony, right? You want to remain neutral when possible and make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. And that's, that's difficult when it comes to the issues that we're looking at right now. Um, Desmond Tutu, you know, reminds us that if there's oppression going on and you just remain silent, then you're by default on the side of the oppressor. Right. So um, having to stand up and having to stand out and having to recognize something that is difficult um, as a building leader, when you know it may alienate some of your some of your organization is difficult. Right. It is not an easy task to, to, at hand. Um, but 
being neutral in, in instances of injustice, um, it, it is taking the side of the oppressor. Um, if an elephant has a foot on the tail of a mouse and you just remain neutral to say, well, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with me, you know, that mouse doesn't appreciate um, the fact that you're just going to ignore that this big, huge thing is, is holding me back or is holding me down. And so it's, it's you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to, because the elephant didn't do anything wrong. You know, the elephant feels like I was just here. I was just, this is how I'm made. This is the system I'm in. And this thing just happened to be here. And, you know, it's not on purpose. So why should I have to do something? And that's, and that's difficult. Um, but, you know, we've got to, we've got to be strongly pro-kid. Um, Cornelius Minor uh, discusses that we have to be fiercely pro-kid, and that allows for that conversation to become a little easier by saying that it doesn't really, you know, we're not going to focus on how the adults feel about it. We're going to talk about the children in our care and what are we going to do to support them, even if it makes some of us a little uncomfortable, you know, forcing us to that edge of our comfort zone in order to do what's best for, you know, the children that are in our care. Uh, that, and that's, that's not easy, right? It's easier just to say, oh, everybody's happy and everybody's good and, and we've got great morale and this, that, and the other, and not focusing on, you know, but there are factions of our staff that really feel a certain way about something. And as an administrator and, and, and you know, leaders of organizations, we look at, but what's the main overarching thing? Are most of the people happy? Are most of the thing, is most of the thing moving forward? And when it comes to something like this, that's just not enough. We have to address those, those uncomfortable things as well. Thank you. And one of the things, we're, the second question we're going to look at this morning is, if you could provide advice on talking about racial issues, what would that be? So, Michael, we're going to start with you again. I know from our uh, conversations, not on this webinar, that you have been called racist. You've been called um, many names as a building administrator. So if you were going to provide uh, advice how about how you deal with issues that come to your desk in your campus about race, how, what advice would you give? Uh, so two, two frames of that. Uh, one would be personally, right? There, there's a lot of times that um, people are, are what we sometimes refer to as keyboard warriors. And they, they get on the email and they get on the computer and they think they, you know, they, they, they go off, right? They, they have a lot to say. And very rarely do those things transpire to, you know, an in-person meeting. Because uh, a lot of times they, they assume things from the other side of the computer, having never seen you. Right. And having a conversation with you that there, there's been a lot of things that I've been tasked to respond to that were, you know, after seeing me for half a second, they would know that uh, they were mistaken on, on some of their assumptions. Um, one, understanding that we're here for kids and all of those things that come to, to you or the person in the office personally, um, that's that's one thing. But when you're here for the kids you put all that to the side and you, you get to the point where you say, I have to validate these concerns um, to do what's best for our kids. Because this person has kids that go to my school and, and my school is going to be a place that um, I'm going to contend with somebody who's teaching their child these things at home that may not necessarily mesh with a multicultural 
school or organization where they're going to be sitting side by side with all kinds of different kids. Um, so so I, that's my suggestion for the personal part of being an administrator. Um, from the professional side and, and dealing with kids, I think it's important for us to provide the resource of time for our staff and to provide time to have the conversations about what's going on and how it's going to affect the kids in our care. Uh, You can't make time, right? It's a a finite number. Everybody's got the same 24 hours, but we've got to take some time to say this thing may not be as important right now. So instead of talking about, you know, what's the latest homework policy, we may have to switch gears and say, what's going on outside of the classroom right now that we need to ensure we have a response for in the classroom? People don't just stop everything that happens at home just because they walked into school, right? They don't stop. They don't forget what they heard on the radio or what they saw in the news or what their parents talked to them about just because they walk into a building that's filled with people that someone else might have been disparaging, you know, just minutes before. So making sure we provide time for teachers to talk about these things and have the conversation, have dialogue, uh, produce some options, and, and helping them understand that it's going to be uncomfortable. It's a part of the process. And if it causes our teachers a little uncomfort to do what's best for our kids, to make our kids more comfortable, then, then that's, the, that's the tough charge that we have to take. Thank you. And uh, Cheston, what advice would you give people uh, about dealing actually with racial issues? What I would give them the advice to just kind of learn and lean into discomfort, Ruby. Um, It's not comfortable for anybody, Um, but we've got to lean into that discomfort because the things that we don't understand or that are outside of our experience are very real to somebody else every day. And as Michael said, oftentimes it's the kids that are in our classroom that are dealing with these issues. Um, I give, I guess as a follow-up to that is, the kids are not called to teach you. Um, so we don't want to put this, this burden on their shoulders of they have to teach and tell you everything or your, your colleagues of color. Um, they don't owe you free time and advice. You've got to learn. You've got to seek resources on your own. And, you know, social media is the gift and the curse. But I love being on Twitter. You've got to follow... Uh, Trump and Biden. You've got to follow Fox News and MSNBC and and the BBC, and you've got to gain perspective. Allowing those perspectives into your world doesn't mean that you're going to change the person that you are, but it can inform the lens with which you view your classroom. Nobody, I, I just don't believe that teachers go into the business to hurt kids. There are many things that we can do because of the stories, because of the people that we are and how we've constructed ourselves over the years that, um, we just have our world of experience and we forget sometimes we start projecting that on kids in the classroom. We say things that are hurtful that we don't know about. So you can go to teaching tolerance. You can follow the hashtag disrupt text. You know, you can look at hashtag clear the air and just start to get some resources on your own. Um, make sure that when you're seeking resources, if you want to learn about a Black perspective, because there's not just one. Like Ruben said, I could have Candace Owens speaking on it. I could have John Lewis speaking. They're still Black. So stop writing that single story. But, you know, if you want to get some information, 
there are free webinars out there that you can join and you can sit in on and you can you can learn from other people by just listening. So I think recently I've been on Twitter a lot more and I've been listening to voices. I've been thinking about things that I could have said and done that unintentionally could have made a child feel separate. We have big issues. Um, for example, I was filling in for a teacher once when I was the district coordinator and I was walking in ELA classrooms and she had an emergency. And so she left and I was in there with her kids and I was talking and asking questions. There was a lot going on in the back corner of the room. And I glanced and said, well, you know, you guys, you guys have got to sit down. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Look, he was out there and he was being rowdy and now he's sitting and guess what? That was the dynamite because the student yelled, I'm a female, right? Right back at me. So <laughs> it was really a metaphor for me not seeing her really. Um, she was in transition. And one of the things that was outside of my realm of experience at that point in time as a, a district level administrator was I still had more to learn because I didn't stop and ask her pronouns. I didn't see her. I literally didn't. I only caught the peripheral. She had a fade. It was a, you know, um, it was cut lower than Michael's and I saw what I thought to be a man, okay, or a male student. And I was wrong. When I saw her years later at, you know, the, the junior college, she ran up to me and gave me a hug. She knew that I was embarrassed and me sharing that. And I apologized to her and everything like that. And every time I would see her in the hallway, I would uh, go out of my way to talk with her, ask her how she was doing. And so that was a learning experience for me. But you know what? You're going to be embarrassed sometimes. You're going to do the wrong thing sometimes. But you have to listen and you have to be okay with being wounded because you have to start getting over yourself and figuring out how not to wound other people. You know, there's that whole saying that says, if you don't heal from the cuts that you have, you're going to bleed over people who didn't inflict the wound. Love that phrase. That's great. Ruben, how would you, thank you, Chester. Ruben, how would you deal with, what advice would you have to give? I think the first call to order is to act on curiosity. And I think it's curiosity of self and others. So where did I come to believe where I be what I believe? Who told, who passed down the stories to me? Was it a diversity of people or was it mainly from one belief and one standpoint? You know, because what I believe doesn't necessarily make it true, or what I believe could be just one angle. And if we're all going to believe what was passed down to us by family and friends and our circle of intimacy, then we have an emotional commitment to that, to at least even to honor it despite other people's truths. So sometimes curiosity in and of itself is the the most gracious way you can offer a gift to other people and yourself in order to put yourself in a broader perspective of what reality is. Um, if you've lived your entire life having racial conversations that are a mile wide and an inch deep, you can have a false sense of being well-informed. Uh, when I started working with minority issues in the district and our my personal experience was I went directly from a mile-wide-inch-deep conversations to mile-deep-inch-wide. Mile and the temperaments that just 
flared at the tables and at committees that were specifically designed to address diversity issues were unbelievable. We could not get very deep into a conversation, into an issue, into an experience, into a headline news without somebody who typically was very calm and very easy to talk to, all of a sudden becoming extremely rigid because they were just so cemented in what they have been told was the truth. Um, one example I gave somebody once was this. Um, there was a person I was talking to and they said, well, somebody was at a restaurant and we didn't have any seats for them, so we didn't seat them and they accused us of being prejudiced and racial issues. And I said, let me ask you, and, and, she, and, and I'm shortening the story, but I said, let me ask you if this is what happened because there were a lot of definitions as to why things were happening. There were a lot of assumptions as to why things were going on. And I said, so let me, let me tell you what I think happened and you tell me if I'm right. So you were, somebody in, in, your, in your employment was accused of being racially prejudiced. There was an argument, there was yelling. That person walked away. And then somebody who already sees the world the way you do talked to you and you all assumed what was going on in the other person's head. But that other person never had the opportunity to talk to you about what's going on. I said, for a lot of people, here's the difference. We don't know when, when there's an issue at hand or when there's an emotional trigger. And if there is something that triggers something in me, it doesn't matter what's at hand, it's a trigger. My biggest example is this. I was almost killed by a snake when I was four years old. I have a deathly fear of snakes. And I don't care how educational you want to make a snake. If you put a snake in my in anywhere near me, I am triggered. And this 59-year-old man is going to act like a three-year-old child. So a trigger and an experience is sometimes very, very easily confused for each other. Um, and I think that we need to, you know, as... A society, we only value one voice at a time. You know, the white voice during this decade, the black voice during this decade, the brown voice during this decade. And at any time that all any voices are silenced and we cannot have all voices at the table, we're very limited in what we understand. So I, I think my last point is going to be that, you know, the first slave, and that's not the only diversity issue that we have, but it's the most, it's the loudest one for now. Um, the first slave on this land was brought here in 1619. So that is 401 years with experience in some sort of diversity issues. Okay, so if we have 20 generations of people who have free access to education, free access to whatever, and I know there's different stories along the white storyline that not everybody had that, but it was not, it was for different reasons and we don't have time to do that now. But if we look at 1965 being when all of a sudden we had legal integration, and that's only 55 years, and that is 2.75 generations in comparison to 20 generations, we, can't, we were very naive to believe that there is no effect that we are now taking a result of that or that we're just supposed to forget about the past that easily. It, it doesn't happen that way. Thank you, Ruben. So, Ruben, Cheston, Michael, thank you for taking your time this morning to uh, talk about this very sensitive issue from different perspectives. 
from the feeling angle, the ethical angle, the structural angle, and how we begin talking about it. Uh, thank you again for your time. And um, to the audience, we hope that this will give you some strategies and some ideas and some understandings as we work with children. Thank you very much.